Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Welcome to 11 o'clock service. Welcome those online watching the streaming service. I know folks in Canada, Mexico, and around the United States. I know there's people watching from Malawi, Africa. I believe there's folks watching from Australia and South Africa and different places around the world. So it's really neat to have the technology to be able to live stream to those folks not only in Bakersfield, but for you guys around the world. As you can see with all the prophecy update and what's going on, it is chaotic out there. It is crazy. You don't know which way is coming up and down. There's riots going on here and there and race riots and the world is going nuts. And I think we understand from a prophetic standpoint that it's supposed to be nuts. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to continue in our series in Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 6, and I've entitled it Staying on the Path. But it really lends to what's going on today around the world. As you can see, we've had a giant coronavirus shutdown, and now we're seeing these race riots, as they're called, popping up all over the place. You have Antifa and Black Lives Matter, which are communistic groups, causing chaos. I think right now in Seattle, they have a section sectioned off where they're creating a new state or whatever it is. And we have flat-out anarchy and the mayor of Seattle doing nothing about it, the governor of Washington State doing nothing about it. Let an anarchy pop up like that, and it's crazy. I find it interesting that the anarchists who created this little state that they have made have walls and borders around it, yet they didn't want us putting walls and borders. Isn't that ironic? I also saw, you know, they, they say they're for peace and they're peaceful demonstrators. And a preacher just went in there, I think yesterday or the day before, and he got manhandled. A homosexual came up to him and planted a big fat kiss on his mouth. And then they took him down to the ground and wrestled him to the ground. You talk about friendly and just peace-loving. No, I don't think so. They sound like the Sodomites from Sodom and Gomorrah. They sound like the Gibeonites that went crazy and acted like Sodom and Gomorrah. It sounds like the days of Noah, doesn't it? Sure does. And what you're going to see in the text is going to lend itself to what you and I are going through. We're in a very chaotic period. And Moses is in a kind of a, a chaotic period or transition before all the plagues start because stuff has happened. Obviously, Moses has been told to go in and uh, you're going to confront Pharaoh. God told him he's not going to listen to you, but that seemed to not be grasped by Moses. He forgot that part. So anyway, he goes in there, tells Pharaoh, and Pharaoh gets really upset, tells him, look, not happening. In fact, I'm going to make the Jews' jobs harder, and I'm not providing straw for them. And so basically he's doubling or tripling the work the Jews are going to have to do. And if they don't make their quota, I will beat them to death. So it's caused an eruption in Israel, in Egypt. Moses is confused. and like, what? I thought I was on a mission for God. I thought this was all going to work out. I thought the doors are going to open, and, and Pharaoh's just going to let him out and let him go once I went in there. And nope, the opposite has happened. He's got more resistance, and he's put burden on the Jews. And so the Jews in Egypt are mad at Moses. Moses is confused. The Jews are saying, look, you came in there and said Yahweh's going to deliver, but we have more work. So... It's chaotic. No one knows, you know, what, what was the plan, Moses? And so what God does in this situation to bring order 
into Moses' life and the Israelites is he comes back and reminds Moses who he is again. He's already told Moses who he is at the burning bush, but he comes back and says, this is who I am. Now, that's going to be important for our application in understanding what he does for Israel and Moses, what he's doing for us. Understand that the typology with Egypt and the plagues is actually a typology for the end times. Pharaoh is a typology for the Antichrist. Moses is a typology for Messiah. Israel is a typology for future Israel, obviously. And Egypt represents the world. And so when you look at and study the Exodus, what you're really looking at is the book of Revelation. And the plagues that you'll see in the Exodus will be multiplied, obviously, in the tribulation. And so what you're starting to see is that before the plagues start, there's kind of this chaotic moment that people are not sure what's going on, what's happening. And now as we're entering these last days, even believers are unsure about what's happening, what's going on, what am I seeing? I, I've never seen things like this. Even our older generation said, I, we have never seen this kind of behavior in people. We have never seen this resistance to the truth, this, this crazy talk, these narratives that are a bunch of lies. We don't know, sometimes know where we're coming and going. I mean, they tell us one time, before the, the, the coronavirus, you can't wear a mask, it's not good. Then they tell us to wear a mask, and then at the end of it, they're saying, yeah, the masks don't help. Well, who's right? It's real deadly, but then they say, no, it's like the common cold, and it's like, who's right? What's happening? Misinformation is intentionally being distributed. To cause confusion. Because when people are confused, you can control them. That's the problem. So what God is doing to Moses and Aaron and Israelites is going to get them refocused back and saying, Moses, quit looking around you at the chaos. Focus on me now. Keep your eyes on me. It's like when Peter got off the boat. You remember they started walking on the water and Jesus called to him. And Peter would walk on that water as long as he kept his focus on Jesus. But then the minute he turned to the chaos, the winds and the waves, he sank. It's the same principle. So God is just like snapping Moses back into it and saying, wait a second, Moses, stop, 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 stop. Remember who I am. And that's the same for you and I in this chaos that's going on. God is telling you and I, remember who I am. Because when you come back to understanding who God is, it reorients you to reality. It reorients you to the truth. Right now, truth is scarce in the world. Very difficult to find it. Very difficult. That's why people are getting fooled a lot. Because they don't know where to go for truth. You and I obviously know. And that's where we have to reflect focus our attention back on the Lord in the midst of all this junk going on. I'm telling you what, man, if you don't focus on the Lord, you're going to be caught astray. You're going to go in all these different directions, all these different paths, and God wants you on one path. So it's like this picture I have of these mazes. This is how the world is right now. Everyone's on a different path. They're taking different paths, thinking this is the right way. And then before you know it, you know, they're over here. We've got to buy steaks because they're telling us they're going to run out of steaks. And then we've got to go over here because we've got to buy toilet paper because we're running out of toilet paper. And then this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And they chase their tails in this maze because they're not centered on the truth. And the truth, then you will find the path, you will find the clarity, and you will find reality and how to cut through all this. You and I have to do this. 
This is what God is preparing us for. It's true. It's very true. Your life is not returning back to normal. It's not. Not with all the stuff they have done. It's not going back. You have to accept what reality is going to bring you. And that's what God's trying to do is saying, I will take you through this as long as you keep focused on me and never forget who I am. You can make it through. I'll take you all the way. Because I don't know. I don't know how long we have till the rapture. The rapture is imminent. It could happen right now. But what if the Lord tarries, delays his return, and we see a lot of the setup for the tribulation? It's going to get really hairy. You're going to see a digital currency, perhaps. You might see the globalization of the world happen. I don't know what that means for the United States, but I can tell you this. The way they're engineering the things in our country, these people in our country, a lot of them hate our country. They hate our Constitution, and they hate the church. We have to realize that. So how are we going to survive? With the truth. With God. That's how you're going to do it. Now, understand there's a price to pay for this. And going forward, Moses will pay the price. The Israelites are going to pay a price. Because now the truth has been told to Pharaoh, and guess how he's reacted to it? He didn't like the truth. Yahweh has demanded Pharaoh, let them go. They're my people, not yours. You're not a God. I'm the one true God. You think he liked that one? No. He then now is persecuting the Jews, as he has been. He's doubled, tripled the persecution. And that's what I have to warn you about. As we go forward, things are not getting easier for us. They are going to get tougher. We are going to have to have steel in our soul to prepare for this. How do we do it? Truth. The truth is what puts the steel in your soul. That's where it's at. That's where God's wanting us to have that to prepare. We're going to get soft persecution. I know it's coming. We're going to get that. We might get legal persecution against us. Look at the churches. Still, a lot of them are shut down. That's a form of legal persecution. What do you mean? It violates our constitution. And they don't care. And the, a lot of the churches are compliant with this. But anyway, let's, we're going to focus then on... on there's, there's two aspects in this text. I'm only going to focus on one. Next week, we'll go on the other one. But what God's going to do is refocus Moses and Israel about who he is... That's what we'll study today. And then next week, he reveals what he will do. Who he is and what he will do. That's how he reorients Israel and Moses. And that's how he reorients us. Who he is and what he will do. Okay? God's works and God's person. Okay? So we're just going to study the person today of Yahweh and what he reveals about this. And this is where we're going to get our application and how we're going to apply that to our own personal lives. So the issue is staying on the path. We've got to stay on the path. Okay, how do you do it? How do you stay on the path? Because I don't want to take a maze. I don't want to be led astray. Like today, I was, I was, I was coming here to church, and I'm watching this dude ride a bike. It's, I don't know, 7 in the morning. He's riding a bike, and he's got a mask on. And I'm thinking... Dude, you're led astray. Do you not know that riding a bike with a mask is not going to help you? I mean, I'm thinking that dude's off the path. He doesn't get it. And you see weird stuff like that happening. And you're like, what's wrong with people? They don't know the truth. That's what's happening. When you don't know the truth, you do goofy things. We'll talk more about that. But anyway, so first principle, and this is the only principle I'm going to deal with, and then we're going to apply all of this, is this. Staying on the path involves knowing... And accepting the reality of who God is. It's one thing to know, but the other thing you have to do is accept 
the reality of who God is. This is a major problem for even believers of accepting who God is. So they have a difficult time. What do you mean by that before we get into the text? When God reveals himself in the scripture, he says who he is, what he will do. And a lot of believers have a hard time with that in this sense. They look at their own personal lives and they have their narrative in their life about how God should be, how God should act. Okay, those are the two facets. And whether you get them from your childhood, whether you get them from your family members, where you get them from the church you grew up in or whatever it is, if they were perpetrating a different God from the Bible, that will ingrain to your head and you will automatically think that God should be X, Y, and Z in your mentality. And then when you come up to the scriptures and you start reading about who he is, it smacks you right in the face about the reality of who God says. And what you start realizing is your concept of God is foreign to the Bible. I had to learn that pretty quick as a Catholic growing up. I thought I related to God on works. Totally wrong. Totally wrong. So it took till I was 19 to figure this out. When the Lord revealed to me, you don't relate to me, Brandon, on works. You relate to me on faith alone. Salvation is faith alone, and your walk with me is on faith alone, not earning brownie points. And I struggled with that because even after I got saved, I still had a lot of leftovers in me, and I would still relate to God in my sanctification based on works. If I'm pleasing him, earning brownie points or whatever, and being a good Christian, and if I was a good Christian then I'm good with God. And boy, if I failed and made a mistake, man, I'm on the outs. It was this kind of performance-based Christianity that's foreign to the Bible that I was doing. And then finally, I grew past that and understood that's not how to function. But because that's how I understood God, it was foreign to me what the Bible was saying. Okay, that's what we're talking about, okay? So this is what he's gonna do to reorient Israel and Moses. Okay, so let's look in verse two. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, or the way you should translate that is Yahweh. Yahweh or Yahweh. This is the personal name of God. And then he links it in verse 3, I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Now the funny thing about this verse, and we're going to parse it out, is God has already told Moses this one time already at the burning bush, but yet he's bringing Moses back to the same thing he said before. Why? Because with our sin natures, we have a propensity to forget spiritual things. This also applies to Israel, okay? We have a propensity to forget. So God will always say, remember, 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 because it, it's easy to forget. And once you forget who God is, you actually go backwards in your walk with the Lord. The writer of Hebrews will make the point that you don't get to stay where you're at if you're not moving forward. You actually will go back and you will start forgetting. And like the writer of Hebrews says, you will have to be taught the ABCs, the one, two, threes, all over again. So this is what's happened to Moses. He's, he's forgot. So is Israel. And obviously with Israel, it's been decades after decades, centuries after centuries, that they have forgot what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew about Yahweh. And throughout the, throughout the years, Israel has drifted. In fact, Joshua makes the point that in Joshua 24, that Israel, to his day, 
This is after the Exodus, this is after the 40 years, that the Israelites still, some of them were worshiping Egyptian gods. Even then. So, we knew, so what happened is, what we see from Scripture is that after Jacob and then Joseph's time, and when the, the Israelites were in uh, Goshen in Egypt, it seems to be that after Jacob's off the scene and after Joseph's off the scene, things start unraveling for the nation of Israel spiritually. And they start worshiping the Egyptian gods. What that means, though, is that they're forgetting Yahweh. Again, please understand me. It doesn't mean that they have forgotten Yahweh, like, out of their minds. They have forgotten who he is and what he does. And when they do that, several things start erupting in the life of Israel that will plague them for a very long time. So this is all to bring them back. Okay, so... He says, when I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, what he's saying is this. Um, they knew my personal name, and, and then they also knew one aspect of me, that I'm God Almighty. Or the way you could translate it is El Shaddai, or it could be translated the, God, the mountain God, or the God of the mountain, or the mountain one. Mountains always connotated power, okay? So that's why you can translate it mountain. But it's God Almighty. What does that mean in the context for this? That th th this is what the patriarchs knew aspects of Yahweh. That he's all-powerful. He's the one true God that has all power available to him. Why would God mention that to Israel and Moses? Because Moses, I know you're in front of the most powerful man on the planet at the time. But I'm the creator and sustainer. I am, I am the only power in this world. In the universe, I am El Shaddai, and I'm about to show my power. Don't forget that. Don't ever miss that. Now, that's what Moses needed to hear. He also needed to hear that God's a personal God with the personal name of Yahweh. Let me get to that in just a second. Let me, let me focus on the El Shaddai. This is a specific aspect about Yahweh that Moses and Israel has to know in order for them to be delivered. To believe that they're going to be delivered, they have to believe in the power of God. Okay. This is important for you and I also. Let me make a point of application before we go any further. Growing up, if you have a misperception of God growing up, the three typical or generally speaking areas where you will miss attributes of God are in what I call the three Ps. The three Ps are this. You will misunderstand the presence of God in your life, you will misunderstand the provision of God in your life, and you will misunderstand the protection of God in your life. Those are all characteristics of God. But when you go through life and you experience life, what will happen is you'll, you'll distort reality by what's happening to you, and one of those aspects will be missing. You'll believe in God. You'll believe in Jesus, but you won't believe in him for provision. You won't believe in him for protection. You won't believe in him for his presence. Because you're going to say, well, I was having a lot of bad things done to me. Where was God when that happened? And you start doubting his presence. Or we were starving growing up. We had nothing. We were dirt poor. Where was God in his provision to me? See how that works? You start doubting specific aspects of God. That's what Israel was doing. So he reminds them, I'm El Shaddai, because they are doubting his power to deliver them. That's why this is highlighted. 
Also notice that the Abrahamic covenant is connected to this. The Abrahamic covenant, when you see the term Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, every time it's mentioned in connection with Yahweh, it's linked to the Abrahamic covenant, which is still in effect today for the Jews. The Abrahamic covenant is still in effect. That's why when you see the prophecy updates about this whole thing about Israel annexing parts of Judea and Samaria, which they call politically the West Bank, it's Judea and Samaria, they're taking back that land. It's theirs. God bless them. It is theirs according to the Abrahamic covenant. But what you're going to see is a retaliation from the Middle East for them doing that because Satan knows the Abrahamic covenant and doesn't want the Jew to have any land whatsoever. That's what this is all about. The Middle East, if you can understand the Middle East, all you have to think about is this. It's an attack on the promises of God to the Jews, to the land, to all the things that are going to happen to the Jews in the future. That's what they're doing. So they take the Temple Mount, they take land from the Jews, and the whole world is against them. But anyway, he's connected to the Abrahamic covenant. And there, there's a reason for this, okay? But then the other text says this, and I've got to do some, a little explaining on this one. And it says, but by my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. That probably is misinterpreted by the English version because they did know Yahweh's name. In fact, 162 times, Yahweh's name is used in Genesis as back as early as Genesis 4. And it says in Genesis 4 that they started, men started calling upon the name of the Lord or name of Yahweh. So this translation in English is probably not accurate. According to some of the best scholars on this, like Walt Kaiser and W.J. Martin, they said the way this should be translated in your English Bible is it should be translated in a rhetorical question. And the rhetorical question should read like this. Did I not make my name known to them? That's how it should be translated as a rhetorical question. And so what it implies is God revealed his personal name to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the patriarchs back then. They knew who he was. But now Israel has forgotten. So there's a continuation that I'm going to now reveal to Israel again because they've forgotten who I am just like I did with the patriarchs. That being the case, it is obvious that Israel needs a refresher course. So he's going to do that. So here's what I'm going to do now. I'm going to give you the principles on the name of Yahweh and all the implications it involves, and then that's going to correspond with what Israel needs and what we need to stay focused on the truth, okay? So he's going to reveal who he is. So the first thing we want to realize about the, the name Yahweh, it's a tetragrammaton, it's usually called the tetragrammaton. It's uh, four Hebrew letters. We don't know the vowels, um, we, so we don't, we don't know if we're pronouncing it correctly. We, we're taking our best shot at saying Yahweh or Yahweh, um, but we still don't know, obviously. We will one day, that's for sure. But l- let me give you a few principles, okay? Number one, the name of God represents the totality of him. That's what he wants Israel to know and what's, what he wants us to know. So when God says, I am Yahweh, he wants to know the, all the totality of him. That means the character, the reputation, the nature, the attributes. All those things are involved in that. So for instance, one of the things that I had a hard time understanding about God in his attributes, in his character, in his nature, growing up and then getting saved, is God's provision. I grew up with the mentality, if you're going to get it done, you've got to do it yourself. I mean, it's a very common thought, right? Very independent thought. 
And so uh, I didn't know some of these aspects of how God provides. And so I would do things to provide for myself, whether it was security, my goals in life, the way I would structure my life, were all without that aspect of God into my equation. And you can see the problem that could cause. That if you're going to make your way through life, you've got to do it. Well, guess what? If you try to do that, at some point you're going to hit brick walls. And you're not going to be able to get through. And what do you do at brick walls? Well, some people force their way through them. Some people manipulate through that stuff. They'll do anything they can to get through that wall. But they're not getting anywhere. They're stuck. And that's where I started realizing, oh my goodness, I'm hitting brick walls and I can't get past them. And what God was showing me is, that's right. I have to open the walls for you. I have to provide for you that which you cannot do for yourself. It was a very humbling experience. Because everyone wants to be a self-made person. Everyone wants to make their way in life. And pat themselves on the back. And God's saying, you're not making through this life without me. There's no way you're getting through it. And so part of understanding uh, Yahweh is to know the totality of him in order to function correctly. Now, for instance, this coronavirus shutdown. This coronavirus shutdown caused things to come up out of people that they were harboring inside of themselves for a long time. So, for instance, if their marriage was on the rocks, it really went on the rocks because it revealed things to them. So, for instance, most people think, well, I just fixed my marriage and, you know, this and that. You can't fix it by yourself. You need God. You need Jesus to help you and use his system of principles and the way he manages things to have a successful marriage. You're not doing it without him. But then kid problems start popping up. Kids are driving them crazy. I get it. I mean, you're locked up with the kids. You can go nuts you got to get some time away. But on a serious note, what it started revealing is, oh, wow, we have some major parenting flaws. I don't know how to fix this. And so what God was showing people is, that's right. You don't know how to fix this. I want to show you how to do this. And so all that was to say is that people, God was shaking and is shaking the world right now, saying, you can't get through this life without me. And so... That's knowing the totality of him. The second thing to know about this in in principle is this, that the name of God is a verb. We translate it I am or to be. And then why are we going over this? I thought we went over this in Exodus 4. Yes, but God's reminding Moses again. Moses, I am the God of action. My personal name is action-oriented. It's a verb. I'm not sitting back on a cloud Watching this all go down and not involved and not interested and saying boys will be boys. I am directly involved in the world that you're in. The chaos that you're in, I'm right there. In fact, it's part of my plan, Moses. And the chaos that you see around our world, it looks like, where's the control? And God's saying, I'm in perfect control. In fact, it's going exactly as planned. Do you believe that God's in control of this chaos? You better believe he is. In fact, they're doing everything he wants them to do. In that sense, as far as prophetic, they're, they're lining themselves up. He's basically giving over. You want it? You got it. You want your anti- antichrist? I'll give him to you. You didn't want me, but you want the man of sin that lets you do anything you want? Have at it. You don't want Jesus? Fine. Have at it. 
That's what's happening to the culture. They're being given over. So he is going according to plan. This is what happens when a culture or a society has been turned over to their sin. You get a depraved mind. That means you can't think straight anymore. Your common sense goes out the door. They are lunatics running through our streets. Absolute lunatics that need to be locked up. This is why you can't debate with anybody anymore. Talk the truth. Give facts and evidence because they have lost their minds. And then it goes to a darkened heart. They can't love anymore. And then it goes into immoral behavior. So anything goes at this point. So you and I shouldn't be shocked. The chaos is a result of being turned over. It's going exactly the way it should. Scary, but yet it's, that's reality. Number three, the name of God is connected to the patriarchs. Never forget that. And you're like, what's the big deal about this? What it's doing for Israel and Moses and what it does for us is it links God personally, not only to the past, but to the present, but to the future. That God is actively working in the past, the present, and the future. God is timeless. He's an eternal being. Okay, so what does that mean for you and I? What does that mean for Israel? It means this, that what I did for your ancestors, I'm doing for you now, and I will do in the, to the future for Israel. I am actively involved in the nation of Israel. I always will be. And that goes into us as well. We are under the new covenant, and because of those promises, God is active not only in our past, but our present and our future. It's like, okay, what does that mean? Whatever happened to you in your past, whatever happened to you right now in your present, has future implications. And what is the future implication of the promise that you have from God, Roman, according to Romans 8? That God works all things for good for those who love him or are called according to his purpose, if you allow him to. If you protest him working in your past or working in your present, you don't get that promise. That's not a blanket statement. You have to cooperate. What do I mean? What do, you, what do you mean, past, present? What is God doing in your life right now? What is he wanting from you? What, do you know what he wants from you right now? And how is he going to use your past to help you forward? How is he doing that? See, you have to be able to answer those questions because he's linking, he's the God of covenants. He links past, present, and future all together, and your whole life sits in front of him, and he's saying, this is what I am doing with your life. It has a purpose, it has a reason, and I hope you get on board on that. That's what he's doing with you. That's what he's doing with us. That's what he's telling Israel. I'm not going to abandon you. I will deliver you because I have a future for you. That's what he's trying to say. Even to this day, that's still good for the Israelites. For the name of God revealed that he was personal. Yahweh is his personal name. What, okay, what, what is that? Well, in the ancient world, this was a great privilege to know the, pers- the personal name of a god. Now, with, obviously, with God, it's a great privilege to know his personal name. But what does that mean? It means that truth is personal. It means that God is personal and that God is not some you know, deity uninvolved in your life. The fact that God has a personal name implies that he wants a relationship with his people. Now, you already know that. You've heard that. God wants a personal relationship, but that's in his name. Okay? Therefore, 
when he's talking to Israel, when he's talking to Moses, he is saying, I have adopted you. You are my children. You have basically my family name on you. Do you not think I'm going to protect my family? And the same is true with us. In the new covenant, we have God's identification on us by the seal of the Holy Spirit. We are marked out. We are God's property. And God is telling you and I, do you not think I can take care of my own property? Do you not think I can navigate you through the difficulties of life? Because I am your God, your personal God. I will see you through it. I have a vested interest in you because you're one of mine. And so this, this is an empowering thought that God's with us personally, hasn't abandoned us. Lastly, number five, the name of God allowed the Israelites to call on him for deliverance. This action, this verb in God's name implies deliverance. And please understand, to the ancients, they had to know the personal name of the God in order to call on him for deliverance. And by the way, theologically, that's actually correct. That's what the Bible teaches. In order to, to have physical deliverance from this life, or whatever that might be, you first have to have spiritual deliverance. Okay? That's a very important order. So don't get this out of, out of, out of whack. So how did that happen with Israel? Because Israel had forgotten Yahweh. A lot of them weren't saved. Well, if you look at Exodus 4.31, when Moses and Aaron get there to the Israelites and show them the miraculous signs that God gave them to authenticate themselves, it says in that verse that Israel believed. That is their national salvation. And hence, since they now believe in the personal God, Yahweh, he now can go to work with them in a physical way of physical deliverance. So you first have to be delivered first spiritually, and then deliverance happens physically from that. You can't have the order out. So, okay, what do you mean by this? This is all about knowing the personal God. People who pray to God who do not know him personally, do not know who he is, but they say, yeah, I know, I believe there's a God. When they call upon God in general and not his personal name, not through Jesus the Messiah, they end up not having their prayers answered. He hears them, but he's not going to answer physical deliverance prayers because they don't have a personal relationship with them. So the prayer he's going to answer for an unbeliever is the prayer of salvation. I want to know you. I want to be saved. I want, I, want, I, you know, I want a relationship with you. I want forgiveness. That's where it starts. This secondary thing of physical deliverance is for believers only. That's how it happens. Now, physical deliverance, with obviously in the text, is getting them out of Egypt, right? That's, that's the physical deliverance. They have to be the exodus, basically. In the future, it's the same thing for Israel. Israel, as a nation, will have to be saved first spiritually, and then Jesus comes back to rescue them physically. How do I know this? Well, according to the Scriptures, according to prophecy, Israel gets saved three days prior to the second coming. 
This is in Hosea 6. They get saved, and a number of psalms talk about them calling upon Hosanna, save us. They get saved spiritually, and then the second coming happens, and Jesus rescues them physically. Notice the order. Spiritual rescue and deliverance, and then physical rescue and deliverance come second. Okay, what's the big deal about that? How does, what does this mean for you and I? What does it mean right here in the text? Well, this is where the term call upon comes from. Paul will use this text, uh, use this concept, and put it in Romans chapter 10. So I want you to see this and now understand it in this light, and then I'm going to apply this, okay? This is Romans 10, 14 through 15. People use this many times for just a salvation passage, but they don't understand the context and who Paul is talking about. He is talking about the Jews. And you can apply the principle generally speaking, but it's primarily about the Jews and their lack of response. Here's what he says. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? So notice that calling on him is different than believing. Have you seen that? That's a difference. And then he goes on, and how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So that's how you believe is by faith, by hearing the word of God. And how shall they hear without a preacher? So a preacher's got to be sent to them. And how shall they preach unless they're sent? So someone's got to send the preacher. It's verse 14 that I want to focus in on. How shall they call on him for physical deliverance if they have not believed? And Paul is maintaining the order that if you're going to call on Yahweh for physical deliverance, you must know him personally in your life. Okay, give me some application on this. You and I will call on God to help us. That's a normal prayer. You will call on God to help us. That's, that's what you should be doing. That's the idea of calling, asking for physical deliverance. It could be health issues. It could be... Uh, you know, all kinds of stuff that you're going through. Why does it say that a prayer of a righteous man availeth much in this context, in, in, in concert with this, that those who call on help will get help? Why is it that my practical righteousness is linked to God answering my prayers for help, for physical deliverance? Why is that? Here's where I want to go down with this. And this is where the application has to come. Typically, and generally speaking, if it's according to God's will, He will answer your prayer for physical deliverance based on your practical righteousness. Not your positional righteousness, because positionally you're in Christ and you're positionally righteous. I'm talking how practical your righteousness is. About how... How do you live? So, for instance, if a believer who's out of fellowship with the Lord wants to call on the name of the Lord for something to help, typically that prayer is not going to be answered because the person is out of fellowship. So if you want your prayers answered, so to speak, and not your wishes, but like legitimate prayers, and if it's according to God's will, what helps your prayer out in times of need is how righteous you're behaving. So your practical righteousness does affect God helping you. Now, obviously, there's exceptions to the rule, and, don't, and, and so you have to understand, this is a general principle. But again, once he takes Israel out in the desert, he teaches them practical righteousness. 
of how to live properly. And, that, and, and what you'll see is he'll tell Israel, choose life or choose death. If you choose to follow me, you'll have life. If you choose to disobey me, you'll have death in your life. And that's how he will correspond with Israel. And it's the same is true for the believer. If you want life and you want deliverance from this life, then live practically righteous is what he's trying to say. So anyway, some application. And, and we're going to dig down because this, this is, he wants Israel to know who he is. Okay, he's Yahweh. All these facets he wants to remind Moses and us about. Okay. What then, do, how do we apply this? Well, first of all, I think we have to understand that the revelation that God gives about himself and who he is actually is reality, if that makes sense. God is the ultimate in reality. So when he says something is true, that's the reality. And, and therefore, if you are following the truth, you actually are in reality, if you don't follow the truth, you're not in reality. You actually start losing your mind. Okay, I'm going to give a couple of examples of some crazy people right now. But you'll actually start losing your mind. And this goes into what we see today. Today, there is an ignorance of the truth, right? And we see this all through society. For instance, the coronavirus. Let's take that for example. How much ignorance is still surrounding this? I still don't know if we're coming or going. I see facts and I see evidence saying this is not that bad, but yet I keep hearing from politicians it's bad, but yet the politicians who say it's bad and want the businesses shut down are out there walking with the rioters in masses. Please explain that to me. How is it that the rioters, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, can riot, but we're told we can't? You see the problem here? Somebody's not in reality. Somebody's lying. Somebody's making something up. And you see how much confusion this causes? What's going on here? Let me point something out about ignorance of truth, okay? Our whole society has been geared towards ignorance of truth. I mean, you think you, you send a kid to school and you think he's going to come out with the truth. He doesn't. He actually comes socialized. He's, he's, he's a social experiment. He comes out brainwashed with things that are not true. Do you know that most millennials think communism, socialism, Marxism is awesome? They're like willing to try. And they, they truly believe the free market system is bad. Uh, yes, sir, every system's bad, but that's the closest thing we could possibly get to any fairness. But you're okay with communism and socialism? Who taught you that? Because it's never worked. It doesn't work. There's no facts in history that, that support it working. In fact, it kills people. But yet our kids believe that. They believe a lie. And you can't get them off of that for some reason. What's happened? Well, let me tell you this. Two things erupt out of people who are ignorant of the truth. The first thing you will see in their life is out-of-control behavior. You can see this with little kids, or you can see this with adults. When you see out-of-control behavior, like you're seeing there with these riots, they're burning and looting things down, um, it's an indication of ignorance towards the truth. And then it doesn't help when the commentators and the governors and the mayors say, you know what, see that, folks, tearing down these buildings and looting and setting fires... That's okay, because we owe them. The system is systemically racist, so it's okay for them to steal. 
you tell me, according to the truth of the word, is it okay to steal? No. But for our society, they're saying it is because reparations. You see how topsy-turvy things are becoming now? It's okay now, they say, to steal if you're a person of color and you can go out and loot and take whatever you can because all these guys, these people have white privilege. They broke into black store owners' businesses and took black store owners' stuff. You think it was about race? No. This is not about race. You're fooled if you think this is about race. They want you to think that. That's the lie. But how do you cut through the truth? The truth is I see the agenda. You're trying to take down America. This is what you're trying to do. You're trying to divide and conquer. And you want people to think they're racist. Now, obviously, the out-of-control behavior, you can see this. Okay. The second thing that starts happening when people are ignorant of who God is, they will start letting others control them. Look at that. Classic. When I saw that this week with Nancy Pelosi and this, this crew of leftists taking a knee, I said, these politicians are under someone's control. Whose control are they under? They're control, being controlled by the globalists. They're being controlled by Antifa. They're being controlled by Black Lives Matter. They're being controlled by George Soros, and they don't even realize it. By the way, did you see the articles I finally seen coming out in PJ Media and a few of the other articles that, yes... Just like we expected, George Soros money, open foundations, funneling money to these groups. Yes, Freedom Incorporated has gotten a lot of money. I think the last thing I saw was $18 billion in funds from the Open Society, uh, open society Foundation, funded by George Soros. Did that surprise any of us? No, but they're showing you who their master is. Who is their master? Jesus? Who are they bowing a knee to? Rebellion? Really, that right there is bowing a knee to Satan, who is the god of this world, little g, who is using these useful idiots to get to their plan. They don't even realize who they're bowing a knee to. It's Satan. This is a spiritual battle. I'm going to show you a video that just made me want to puke of watching American citizens buy into these stupid lies because they don't know the truth, they're ignorant. Watch this video. If you don't puke, I'll be shocked. Excuse me. Hey, excuse me. I work for Black Lives Matter. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I work for Black Lives Matter. I'm sorry that I scared you. But since I work for that company, my CEO has told me to come out today and to bring you on your knees because you have white privilege. So if they see that a white person is getting on their knees, that shows solidarity for the situation. The situation. And could you just please apologize for, you know, for your white privilege? Just apologize? I'm trying to think of the right words to say because that's a big thing to say. It's big. It's large in this country. You know, with this country, we have that president, Donald Duck, that clown in office. You know, he's brought a lot of bigotry, and you're not a part of it, right? No. No. And so, you know, just... Okay, you have a great day. You see what's happening? That woman right there is ignorant of the truth. They got her to bow a knee to that foreign god. Black Lives Matter is not about race. You have to understand that. 
It's a revolutionary group. Okay, but what is that an illustration? That's where we're at. People are convinced by the lies they're told that you're racist. You better pay back all your white privilege. So get on your knees. I'm going to tell you what. I ain't bowing a knee to anybody other than Jesus anymore. That ain't happening. That's ridiculous. And then you see these Laodicean Christians coming out and doing the same things. I repent of my white privilege. Look, I never owned a slave. Did you own a slave? Was anyone in this room a slave? You want to blame me for something that happened 200 and something years ago? You're out of your mind. The Bible says, and this is to know the truth, what does the Bible say about your personal sin? You're responsible for your personal sin. I'm not responsible for someone else's. Right? That's the truth. And if I understand that, that would prevent me from apologizing for something that happened 250 years ago. But yet they don't know that. So they want to bow a knee. And so now we have these guys like even Drew Brees of the New Orleans Saints. He came out and said, I don't think it's right that people should take a knee to the flag. And he should have stayed there. He was right. But then the, the pressure got on him. This is going to come on you and I. Him and his wife buckled under that pressure. Buckled to the ground. He might be a strong man physically. He might be an NFL player. But spiritually, I'm not trying to demean the guy. He's weak spiritually. Because he came back and they apologized left and right for having white privilege, all this other junk, for offending people. And he doesn't even realize that what he's doing is a lie being perpetrated on him anyway. And his wife ended one of her tweets or Facebook posts or whatever it was, said that her and him, we are the problem. Drew Brees and his wife admitted in their minds, oh yeah, we're the problem because we're white and we're white privileged. Bingo! Satan just took down another one. Just took down another one who doesn't have the truth to stand on that solid rock. He's on shifting sand and that's why he caved. So the idea is, this is why it is essential that we know who Yahweh is, what he says. Because it gives us that strength to stand in the face of lies, to stand in the face of persecution and say, bring it on because my God is El Shaddai. My God is Yahweh and he will be with me through this all. You will not make me bow a knee to anyone. Pharaoh, Baal, or some communist revolutionary or ultimately Satan himself. And unfortunately, I feel, as I'm watching the landscape of the church, the Laodicean church, I'm referring to not the remnant Philadelphia church, but the Laodicean one, that Laodicea has now bent a knee to Satan. They don't know it, they don't realize it, but they're doing Satan's will. And what did Jesus say about two masters? You know. You can only serve one. Otherwise, you will love the one and hate the other or prioritize the one. And I think I'm seeing in the American churches that Jesus is not the priority anymore. Social justice is the priority. My goodness, that is another God then. That's what's happening. It makes me sick. In all of this too, part of the application, being close to God, being, knowing who Yahweh is, knowing who Jesus is, in his full exposure, a revelation of who he is, what it also does to every human being, and even us as believers, is it reveals our spiritual conditions. 
Does it shock you that you throw God out of the culture, out of the schools, out of society, and then people automatically think they're good people? They were born good. And they'll think that, oh, it was just the environment I grew up in that made me how bad I am. And if I just change the environment for people, then they're act good. That's baloney. That's total baloney. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, worst place you could possibly imagine, had to live in Babylon. How come they didn't go turn into looters and rioters and all this other stuff? They were godly men in a hostile environment. So when these people give you the excuses, they're, they're bad because they were poor or their upbringing was bad, don't buy it. It's a lie. You're bad because you have a sin nature. I don't care if you're rich, poor, slave, or free, male or female, everybody's got one. And that's the problem. Not your socioeconomic well-being. So that's why they don't like the Bible, because they, then they would have to change how they're living. Furthermore, for us, the closer you get to Jesus, and you don't keep him at a distance. There's a lot of Christians that keep Jesus at a distance. Because they know if they get closer to him, then things have got to change. And so when you get close to Jesus and you're growing and you're learning about yourself and you're learning about him and he's revealing things about himself and about you and your deficiencies, folks, that's not the time to run. Don't run away from him. You press forward and say, Lord, I need to understand what's going on in me. I need to understand where, 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 where I'm struggling, why I'm struggling. And he will reveal it. But be careful. Don't run away. Stay there. I know it's scary. But he wants stuff to come out of you. Now, a lot of people, I'll hear them say, well, you know, Brandon, Brandon, I, I really am not motivated a lot of times to read my Bible. And I just don't feel like praying a lot. And I don't feel like studying a lot. And, you know... Um, just not into it sometimes. And sometimes I'll go a month or two without reading the Bible or whatnot. And, and, and then they'll, they'll say this. You know, I, I just think I'm just kind of lazy. And I say, I don't think you're lazy at all. That's a cop-out. You're not lazy. And what do you mean? I just, you know, I just don't feel motivated. So I just, you're chalking it up to laziness, but it's not. It's not laziness. And they look at me stunned. They're like, what are you talking about? I said, a lazy man, a lazy woman... If they have a pain in their side bad enough, they'll go to the doctor. They'll call 911 or whatever, and they'll call a doctor. And I don't care how lazy they are. They will get to that doctor to relieve the pain. And look at me, still don't know where I'm going. And I say, understand this. If you lack spiritual hunger, it is because you don't understand your own spiritual problems. So when people say, I don't have a motivation, what they're really saying is, I don't have a spiritual hunger because I don't think I'm that bad. I don't think, you know, I've I, I worked through a lot of stuff. Let me, let me tell you about my own life. When I got saved, I knew I was a sinner. Everyone that got saved in this room knew they were a sinner, right? Yep, you, that's the only way you're going to accept Christ. You have to admit you're a sinner, right? Did you understand or did I understand the depth of how deep that well went? Of course not. What I have learned is, as I grow is that when I got saved, I'm, okay, I, I know I'm a sinner, okay. But then I started moving along with my relationship, and then this started bottoming out. To this point, I'm like, it can't go any deeper. The will can't go any deeper. I'm this bad? Holy smokes. 
And then you go further, and it, it goes deeper. It's weird. So as you grow, you learn the depths. This is why the Apostle Paul said, I am the most wretched of sinners. Why did he say that? Because the Apostle knew, Paul knew is the closer he got to Jesus, the more his sins were exposed, and the deeper the well went. That's the same thing about you and I. The closer you get to who God is, who Jesus is, it starts revealing things that he wants fixed. And unfortunately, a lot of people push back on that and say, you know what? I've went as far as I'm going to go. Brandon, if I go any further, this will mess up my marriage. If I go any further, this is going to mess up my future. If I go any further with Jesus, uh, my whole life's going to be turned upside down. And I said, well, you have a choice at that point. Do you want it fixed? Are you okay with cementing yourself right now into the final person you will be for all eternity? You make that choice. You can cement yourself in right now. Make the decision to cement yourself in. But God has more to show you. God more, wants more out of you before you go into eternity. It's a big deal. And this is why God reveals himself like this. I am Yahweh. The second thing I want to point out this, and we'll, we'll wrap things up, is it's not just people's ignorance to the truth. What you're going to see with Israel is resistance to the truth. They will constantly be what the Bible terms stiff-necked, hardened. That's a picture of you and I to the truth. So the closer you get to Yahweh, like I said, you're going to get closer to the truth, closer to reality, and you're going to find yourself being stiff-necked on some things. You're going to find the culture stiff-necked. Have you noticed you can't talk to anybody in the culture anymore? They want to fight you? Look at how stiff-necked the culture is. They've they, they got a, a map of this uh, 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 autonomous zone in Seattle, and they're just belligerent. I've never seen any more people so belligerent and stiff-necked than that. But you look at the politicians, you look at all the people in media, you look at the people in Hollywood, they're all stiff-necked. Why? Why don't they love the truth? Why are they out there riding in complete anarchy? Well, folks, understand that most people don't want the truth. That's just the way it is. This is what Moses will encounter. This is what you and I will encounter. People have a way of managing their life they have decided this is how they're going to manage life, and they create a narrative for their life. And these false narratives not only run in our culture, but they run in individually in our lives. And what we do is we create a fantasy world, and I call it a fantasy because it's not in reality, of who they think God is, how they think they are, how they think others are, and how they think reality is. And they create a fantasy out of that. And in their world that they create, they're like, they're like the best person you could possibly imagine. And that God lets them do anything they want to do. And that other people are bad. And they're the good ones. And then they have their group that's good, but everyone else is bad. And so, you know, we're not going to listen to people who are Christians or conservatives. We're just going to focus on our little Antifa group. And, and then they see reality completely different than the way the Bible portrays it. Have you heard the term fairness being thrown out all the time? It's just not fair. We want fairness in outcome. Oh, that's Marxism. That's communism. Who told them that life was fair? Do you think you have a right to fairness in this life? Well, you're sadly mistaken because the Bible says really quick, if you start opening the first few pages of this book, chapter 3, because of the fall, 
life has now become unfair. And we're not getting to fairness until Jesus rules and reigns on this planet. That's the way it is. So if you have the concept in your narrative of saying, well, life should be fair. Yeah, it should be, but it isn't. And what does that mean, implication-wise? It means, guess what happens to believers who follow Yahweh and Jesus? It means that you're the bottom of the barrel in this world. The world only rewards its own. You're an enemy to this world. And so guess what? This world is harder for you than it is for the average Joe who doesn't know Jesus. And you, you have to come to grips with that. Because I know what's going to happen. Because it happens to me. I look across the street. I see people that don't know Jesus. And their lives are going smooth. They bow down to their company. They bow down. They take a knee to you know, white privilege and all this other stuff. And they, they go along. And you know what? Their life just goes real smooth. But I'm looking at you and me. And I talk to you guys. It's rough, isn't it? Because life is unfair. And they won't accept it that way. Let me end on this. Another thing to understand about all of this, of how the name of God reveals our reality. One of the big resistance to God, to truth, to reality, and you can think about this in evangelism terms or even discipleship terms. When people are presented the truth without a support structure to receive that truth, they will typically not accept it. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is, The way God came to us, when Jesus came, it says he came in grace and truth. Don't get the order messed up. It's grace first, then truth. Relationship first, structure of relationship, love, mercy, grace in that structure, and then secondarily, truth is put into that structure. Grace, truth, structure of, of relationship before truth. Okay. When you present the gospel out there like we need to do, make sure that you just don't shoot the gospel gun, and then leave them abandoned. Because they will need a support structure to help them move to discipleship. If they do not have a support structure, they will go back to the group they identify with. So for instance, this will happen in Hebrews, it will happen with you. When you're trying to convince someone that what's happening is from the Bible and whatnot, what they will tend to do is resisted because they want group approval. They want consensus from the group structure that they're already in. And it's very difficult to pull them out, and and they don't want to be isolated alone. So you have to come alongside them and help them in that and form a new group for them. Okay? But the same thing applies for you and I. Now let's go down to us, and this is where I'm going to end it. If you want to grow, if you want to get to that deep well... And you want that stuff out of your spiritual life. You want it out of your soul. Then you ask God, Lord, please reveal to me what's going on inside me. And guess what? He will answer that prayer. I guarantee you he'll answer that prayer. And he will show you. And then it's going to be flat on your desk. And he's going to say, there it is, Brandon, right there, right there. That's you. And you're going to be shocked initially. And you're going to say, no, 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 no. You got something wrong, God. No, no, no. He's no, no, that's you. That's you. Right here. Now, Whether or not you take it and apply it and start working on it is based on how much support structure you have around you to accept that truth. What that means is this. You need the body of Christ in order to accept that truth. You need believers around you that are healthy that can help you with that. 
If you try to take that on on your own, you will typically run from it because you have no support network for it. And that's what people, why people stop. They realize they don't have the resources to help them move forward. And that's important to understand because what's happening in American Christianity is that people are being taught that they can fly solo and don't need the body of Christ. That's why pastors are right now concerned that their congregations are not coming back because the Christian has figured out he can sit in his pajamas and watch online services. That's what they figured out. And they're, they're afraid that these people are not returning. Well, folks, if they do that, they will not get the help that they need. They won't have a support structure to accept the truth, the hard truths about themselves. And therefore, they can't grow. They'll be limited. What's the moral, the, the, the moral of the story? The closer you get to God, the more truth will come into your life. But you have to have the support structure to accept it. Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.